Well, hello, kids, and welcome to season two and episode number 23 of the Eager Beaver podcast, a podcast providing incisive commentary on Canadian politics and general culture. Today, recording day is Monday, March 14th, 2022, and it is a peaceful evening here at the Beaver Lodge, for which I am grateful because things in the world have been rather heavy. I'm your host, the Eager Beaver, pronouns he, him, hey, Mr. Beaver A, and I am elated that you would come sit with us again. Whether you've recently celebrated the fierce and fabulous women in your life as I have, or whether the spring forward has tripped you up as it has Mr. Grizzly, all are welcome. Ooh, that's a big yawn. Uh, Of course, (laughs) a big thank you goes to our podcast's founding sponsors, The Peppermaster, The Miss V Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, and CanadianTarot.com, who are always right on time with their support, and thus we refuse to be tardy with our gratitude. On this episode, we will discuss our magical new world without COVID, and if there is time or energy, uh, because it's been a fire hose of news and daylight savings time and everything, we'll check in on Ukraine. Um, We're going to do things a little differently on this show, Kits. The first part is scripted, and uh, we'll see what happens after. Uh, It's been a weird time. The world outside is changing rapidly, but fortunately, this remains, hopefully, an oasis of sanity and friendship. So let's just be grateful for this time together. All right, kids, take a deep cleansing breath, because here we go. Before we get to it, how about a moment to greet our great our grand and most definitely delicious friend. Hey there, Mr. Grizzly. Hey, Mr. Beaver. How you doing? Oh, uh, it's, it's been rough. Mm. Uh, I admit, how are you? Um, well, the time change really messes me up. Like, um, uh, it's, yesterday was kind of a, a write off. Everything got pushed back because I just I was screwed up. I know it's only one hour, but it's like terrible jet lag. <sighs> and I find the second day today is even worse. Thankfully, um, the way my schedule is, I, uh, I work from home on Mondays. I'm in the office tomorrow. I, I, <laughs> I had a number of meetings today where I was like, yeah, I'm thankful to be working from home today because I feel terrible and I don't know if I would be effective in the office when, you know, there's more people and more things to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. So and just more stimulus. Yeah. And, and I was not capable of it today. Yeah. Neither, but it's, it's been like that for me too. The last two days I have been dragging my, mm. yeah. <laughs> we have an expression in French. So it's like, Basically, I got my <laughs> my backside under my arm. I'm carting it around. Um, uh, my mental health has not been stellar. No, uh, no, no. Mine's uh, kind of out there today too. But I know I, mine is directly related to fatigue. Mm-hmm. What what's uh, what's your uh, what's what's doing it to you or for you or, what, or not? I I don't know. <laughs> I, I I can't tell. I can't tell. I'm I'm wondering if it is the fire hose of news. 
I'm sure that's a lot of it because uh, it's been overwhelming. I've been trying to avoid it uh, today. I've gone on Twitter and it's like doom scroll, doom scroll, doom scroll. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I listen to a, I consume a lot of news for this. Mm-hmm. A lot of news that podcasts galore, right? Get news on the hour, and you know, and mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I curate from different sources, you know, but I mean. And, you know, I listen to a lot of these podcasts on double speed in order to be able to like get all the content in because if I had to listen to everything at regular speed, I wouldn't be able to produce this, you know, and right. reading articles and stuff. But it's just, I mean, God, you know, occupation, desire to overthrow the country, possibly could have gotten violence, fortunately didn't get, well, shoot them up violence let's put it that way mm-hmm. but weapons were found and then like no sooner that you know possibly world war three and destruction and devastation and families being separated and yeah it's just all overwhelming movement of people in europe since world war ii and just, and, uh, and i'm bathing in it mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Right to do this, uh, so I mean, uh, maybe it hit me, but it's but uh, but I've noticed like the last uh, things have been good, right? Like everything's been coming up me, mm-hmm. you know, as as we've been saying, and uh, and but I, I noticed this week that I mean I, I love to cook, and I've not cooked much the last two three weeks, and I've been more emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've been prone to take things said to me the wrong way at first. Short, short fuse. Uh, no, easily wounded. Oh, okay. Why do you think that is? Hypersensitive. Like really like right now somebody said, gee, why are you so sensitive? Like it would probably, reason, but it would probably apply. Mm-hmm. Put it this way, not trigger. It's like, and I, I realize it. Like I'm self-aware enough to realize it, like, but I can't do anything about it. That's one of the great things about as you get older, you start to realize these things on your own. When somebody says, "Hey, are you okay?" You go, "No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm really not. Yeah." So, um, so I'm not okay. But it, it's and it's one of those things. It's like the acknowledgement of it and the and the public um, um, announcement of it is is somewhat. Um, cathartic is that the right word i don't think that's the right word um i don't know if healing's the right world world word but it uh it helps when you talk about it right um, it does something right it t- takes some of the energy and it puts it out to the universe and takes it off away from you right yeah so. yeah exactly and i mean it's like you know that's working from home today and, and uh, it wasn't a super busy afternoon so I had a lot of time to try and, and work on a couple of other problems that I'm trying to solve and uh, I, I was staring at the computer screen for about 45 minutes at one point and it's like I, I can't see the forest for the trees right now because my brain is cream cheese at this point Yeah. so yep. it's like okay I'll have to work on this tomorrow so I responded to a few emails from, from um, individuals looking for assistance and I'm like yeah, let's plan something uh, later in the week. I'll try and get back to you before Friday. It just, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit swamped today, which is a semi-white lie. I don't really want to tell people that I'm necessarily 
jet lagged, overwhelmed emotionally, physically. But, uh, I, you know, with my team, I will tell them I'm just, I'm super tired. I'm feeling it, you know, and everybody, and they're all really supportive. It's just, I, I'm, you know, Gen X. So my brain is never show your weakness. Mm-hmm. And when you get really tired, it's harder to, to uh, fight those old sort of defense mechanisms, which are stupid and damaging and don't help you. But you know, what can I say? Old habits die hard. Yeah. Now similar, it's just, um, you know, sometimes I'd be listening to a podcast and I had to like go back and rewind six, seven times. Yeah. You Cause know, you, I'm you've not heard a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. My brain is just, well, it was like the last 10 minutes and he goes, and you know, some of them are dry. Mm-hmm. Some of them, like I was listening to, you know, on the Hurley Burley, a great interview with uh, former prime minister, Joe Clark. Oh yeah. That would have been, I'm sure. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't remember probably a thing he said in the first 45 minutes of it. I'm going to have to go back and listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, um, and uh, when it came to writing the show and that's why I'm saying, uh, you know, to the kids that this one might be a little different. It's um, I have, so many notes Mm. so like compared to a regular week so many notes it's just too much try to find the through line right because Mm -hmm. i weave narrative right i try to put it all together everything that happened in the week into like some story and you know find a a thread through it just kind of Yeah, I know, so I hear you. much to sift through. So much. It's it's it was it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. So, um, shall we get to the news? I think we shall. Yes, yes, we shall All indeed. Right. Let's do this. Coast to coast to coast. COVID update. Two years ago, on February eleventh, the March, world March eleventh. March 11th, my word, off to a great start. Let's leave that in. Let's leave it in. It's going to be a messy show. Well, we're tired, so. Two years ago, on March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID to be a global pandemic. Happy birthday. I'm not sure whether a course of happy birthday is appropriate here. Okay. Uh, Seems rather insincere to sing happy birthday to that which one wishes had never been born. Well, this is very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the cocktails at this party that never ends are watered down. The food is too greasy and the gifts are the worst. That would explain my upset stomach. <laughs> Over the course of the past week, Canada recorded its 37,000th COVID death. The world, its six millionth. That may be one of the reasons why I feel heavy. And worse yet, according to the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, a survey of international data on excess mortality ending December 2021 revealed that actual worldwide COVID deaths were a bit more than triple that. The five, triple the 5.9 million, which were officially recorded and stood at 18.2 million. What? Come again? So what they do is they look at the amount of deaths that there would normally be. Right year after year and then they look at how much deaths there were and then they compare them and they look at the spread and they call that excess mortality uh, that can be explained by this so they attribute it to whatever major thing would be going on if there was a huge climate crisis if there was a big natural disaster if there was mm-hmm. a 
type of thing. So it's called excess mortality. So while we've officially counted at the end of 2021, 5.9 million COVID deaths, when you do the math backwards using excess mortality data, it seems that it's 18.2 million people have died around the world actually in the first two years. That's um, a staggering number. Yep. In Canada, our official total at that time was just over 30,000. And so that revises up to 43,000. So not triple for us because, you know, we have better public health measures. Provincial mandates. The mandates are provincial. Yes. So Canada, how do we mark this solemn occasion? We freaking cancel COVID, baby. Woohoo! It's done, betches. Yeah. COVID is over, kitties. Gentle kits rip off those boxer briefs. Lady kits throw them panties on the stage. Drag queen kits undo your tuck. We're going streaking. Woo freaking uh, we haven't fun yet. Um, did anybody tell the virus that it's over? Yeah, kids. Our premiers, some of them motivated more by impending early leadership reviews and re-election bids than science, have bought their chips, placed their bets, and aliactest. Now, if you're wondering, kids, that's Latin for the die has been cast. It's Juno Theogabiva podcast bringing you politics and the classics since 2021. Well, thank you, Percival. A pleasure, Sabiva. Oh, enter Kenny. So I'm very pleased to announce 11.59 p.m. on February 28th, we will end the provincial mask mandate. Then Ford. Effective March 1st, we intend to eliminate capacity limits in all indoor public settings. After having swallowed themselves whole on that hole. Seriously, we're absolutely, most definitely not under any circumstances ever caving to the CPC convoy. Thing. Our premiers are now about to enter the process of digesting themselves as they declare COVID history. And when I say they are in, they are all in. Some are so sure that they don't even want to consider building in a week or two cushion before, in the name of freedom, of course, forcing every child in the province, regardless of unvaccinated or undervaccinated status, to be in childcare and school maskless. Last week, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, gave the following frank assessment of the state of the pandemic in Canada. To the extent that it is endemic, it is endemic at a very high level, possibly unsustainable level. I don't think Canada should be going this way. I don't think it's appropriate to download the responsibility of public health management onto the individual. Now, kids, this is where I repeat yet again that currently in Canada, zero children aged under five have received a single jab, and that except for a few immunocompromised children, zero children aged six to 12 have been boosted. This gamble had better work out for them, because I've long ago tired of this game of using children as poker chits. And while Legault in Quebec, who has a bit more runway prior to his election, should he trip over his dick on this, on the way to his re-election, Kenny and Ford, where their leadership reviews and incumbencies are concerned, do not. Mm -hmm. 
It seems these decisions are 40% ideology, 60% naked ambition, and 0% science. Bruce Anderson of Abacus Data offers some insight into the fact the premiers may not have the public on board as much as they believe they do, but are trying to save the furniture with their base. I think the idea that the public thinks that this is something we can dispense with now, I think we're going to find that view, which seems to be driving a lot of the decision-making, is not shared by the vast majority of the public. I personally believe that the decision to abandon the passports at this moment is not prudent, nor is it in line with most experts would say, nor is it in line with most of the public. Maybe in a month, maybe in two months, but there's a lot of other things we could relax right now. Anderson adds, Language is so important. You hear, oh, I'm not prepared to be in a lockdown anymore. I thought I'd test that because that term has almost become weaponized by the opponents of passports and so forth. Passports were originally designed to produce more freedom for those who chose to get a vaccine. Now, that was the idea, and they worked pretty well. Only 7% of Canadians think I'm in a lockdown. But I asked the people who were supportive of the convoy, 25%, we're in a lockdown. So these differences in languages and terminology are really important and are embedding themselves in the two sides of this thing. Hmm. I put that one there for you because Mm -hmm. it's a a point that you make repeatedly that we've never had a lockdown. Never. We've had restrictions. We've had businesses that have been asked to close. But we have not ever once had a lockdown. Right now in Hong Kong, they're in a full lockdown. If you are seen outside of your apartment, you will be arrested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We never had that. Kits, welcome to Freedom Dum. Freedom Dum Dum. When it comes to mask mandates and vaccine passports, pretty much every province in the nation has pretty much already removed or has a date set to bid them adieu. Until they are needed again, should the situation arise, the premiers promise, disingenuously, of course, because we all know bloody well that masses foaming at the mouth would have to be crawling in the streets for them to bring any restriction whatever back. To repeat a sentence from the previous Bruce Anderson quote, Passports were originally designed to produce more freedom for those who chose to get a vaccine. But now the loudmouths who make up a big chunk of most of our provincial premier's bases managed to intimidate them into repackaging passports and selling them to us as obstacles designed to reduce access to freedom for everyone. It's amazing what reframing will do, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So good luck switching that narrative back should we need them again. So we've hit an inflection point. We are now on our own. We are supposed to make our own decisions, but in Saskatchewan and now Nova Scotia, which are no longer reporting daily numbers, the premiers are not being very helpful when it comes to equipping citizens with data on which to base those decisions. They've just left them fumbling in the dark. Same goes once again in Saskatchewan, as well as in Alberta and in Ontario, where freedom to make your own decisions also rather counterintuitively, means parents and school boards are not allowed to consult with their local public health units and exercise the freedom to decide for themselves whether masks will remain on or off in their schools specifically. Which is really curious in Ontario because if you are in university, you will still have that right. (laughs) 
I had my mic on mute there. I'm sorry. I had to uh, yawn. Um, I, I was getting groceries earlier this evening at the uh, Farm Boy here in Centertown in downtown Ottawa, which uh, Farm Boy is like 400 meters from Parliament Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the mask mandate get lifted as of today? I believe so. Well, it's irrelevant because every single person no. in the store was wearing no. one. Yeah, no, no, not don't know. No, it's still there's still another week to go. Oh, is there? Well, it, anyway, everybody in the streets and everybody in the stores were wearing them anyway. Yes, because it's center town Ottawa, where although most of us are working class to lower middle class, we're also very well informed and conscientious of each other. So, yeah. I expect to see people wearing masks. 90% of the time, and I'd be surprised if it was ever lower than that in this part of town. Mm-hmm. So, soon, everyone in Ontario will have the freedom still to wear their masks whenever they choose when in public, except children, when in class, or infants when in daycare. So they, they, they're making the children take them off? Seems so, yep. Does, does that seem like a prudent idea? Shouldn't the children make their own decisions on whether or not they want to wear one? Or, you know, or at least their parents make that decision? Uh, apparently not. Hmm. Freedom means everything but that. Yeah, yeah. freedom, freedom to... Choosing for your own children. Right. So I have the freedom to wear a mask should I choose. Yes. But my children don't. Right. Right. Yeah. Good to know. So, why they are being singled out for special treatment, I don't know. <laughs> File under yet more proof that there is nothing actually conservative anymore about being a conservative. Interesting how allegedly get, well... Big government on your out of your life. Conservative parties are suddenly all... Father knows best. ...and up in your grill when it comes to deciding how much COVID risk your children are forced by the state to take on, and all for exercising their right to acquire an education. Eh? <laughs> so, should the premiers be demasking, as you were asking? <laughs> is no, I don't think they should for a number of reasons. First is that I don't like it when we're linking these decisions to calendar dates and not to some objective indicators or criteria that we can measure in the population. But also, if you look at when the mask mandates were first introduced, it was when we had about 150 cases per day in Ontario. We now have over 2,000 cases per day. So I don't know what the rationale is anymore for removing the mask. If it is not to curtail transmission, we have runaway transmission right now. Says Raywat Dianandan, an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. And again, those numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Remember they said they're maybe 10 times higher? Yes. All these numbers that we're reporting right now, like this could be up to 10 times higher. Because right. we're not testing. So... Well, for most of us, the power of a mask is um, that you can control it yourself. And even if everyone around you has made bad decisions, they're not vaccinated, they have a lot of exposures, they've got symptoms, a properly worn N95 mask removes a big chunk of that risk and keeps the power in your hands. Now, one could argue that you still have the power to wear one, even if the rest of the world doesn't. And that's true. But at a population level, if we're making sure that most people are still wearing the masks, the reduction in transmission would be meaningful. And I would assume it would be even more meaningful among a population that is not vaccinating at all. Mm-hmm. Like children. <coughs> what the, 
When presented with the argument that cases, hospitalizations, ICU stays, and deaths are decreasing, Dionandan asks, Do you want to see that continue? Or do you want it to stop it right here and plateau? That's the question here. So why are we so eager to remove the most impactful and cheapest mitigation tool we have and the least dis- disruptive in our lives, frankly? Why indeed? Huh? <laughs> Pandering. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry, that's something in my throat. Yeah, that happens. Uh, as we are nearing the two-week period after which commenced the great unmasking of 2022, a.k.a. Best spring ever? Huh? Why not another sequel, right? Mm. Why not make it a trilogy? Maybe. Case reporting numbers from the Government of Canada's COVID outbreak update as of March 10th, as imperfect as they are, show that over the past 14 days, 79,402, down from 82,946 last week, cases were reported. But over the past seven days, that number is 38,916, which is down marginally from 39,990 last week. So while Canadians are hearing mostly from conservative provincial politicians that cases have dropped, that has been true when one considers the change from peaks reached in January. But not so much ever since late February, during which the downward trend toward there being less COVID circulating in the broader community has not been as sharp. The seven-day rolling number from the COVID Canada outbreak tracker is all over the place. Yesterday, it sat at 46,137, which is a 23% increase week over week. But today, it's at 37,543, which is 11 cases higher than the number we reported last week. Mm. Now with Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia not giving daily numbers. Well, you know, if you don't, you don't test, you don't have a case. Isn't that what uh, Erdronf said? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The reason we have so many cases because we keep testing. If we didn't test, we wouldn't have any cases. Okay, there's there's a hole in your logic. <laughs> you wouldn't know about them until they show up on your door, coughing up a lung, but they're still there. <laughs> I if I close my eyes, I can't see the sun, so the sun is gone. Right? Right? That's how it works. Life is beautiful when it's simple. Uh... Hmm. Yeah, not only that, but yesterday's numbers outside the 37,000 to 43,000 range within which we had been bouncing when we recorded our most episodes. So uh, again, does it mean anything? Is it just the numbers all being reported on the Monday for maybe for the, well, no, that's not true because uh, I was looking at Nova Nova Scotia reports on Wednesdays and Saskatchewan on Thursdays. Mm. So it wouldn't be an influx from a whole week. So yeah, the numbers just, I guess there must have been a big day the following Monday that dropped off, maybe. I guess. I, I, just, I just don't know. But it's, but it's bouncing around, and it's not getting it's not getting better, like I said. And this is precisely what happened before Omicron happened, wave hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This behavior is going on, except at like half these numbers that are here, minus the 10%, the 10, well, multiple, not 10%, but multiplied by 10 factor, because we're not testing. I'm just so okay. No, go ahead. I'm just never mind. My brain is layered. Right. So layered on top of all of that is the fact that the current number of hospitalizations is still nearly as high as any peak in the pandemic to date. That's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. So the seven-day average hospitalization number for March 13th was 
whoops, I added a number there. <laughs> should not be there. We are not, not that okay. high. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me just take a little look. <laughs> like, I, I looked at the number and I went, oh, that can't be right. <laughs> Yeah, that, that can't be right. No, no, we are not in a couple digits. So 4,438. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that, that's the number I looked at frightened the hell out of me. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So the seven-day average hospitalization number for March 13th was 4,438 down from 40, uh, for, oh, I almost did it again, down from 4,971 last week. Uh, where ICU admissions are concerned, the March 13th seven-day average number was 520, down from 601 last week. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Michael Gardam, chief of staff at Humber River Hospital in Toronto, is also concerned about the seemingly all-at-once removal of citizen protections. We still have a lot of cases. We're still seeing transmission. We're still seeing hospitalizations. We're not going to let that get in the way of the fact that we all want this over, and that's obviously a fairly dangerous position for us to be in mm. and finally as it pertains to deaths the march 13th seven day average number was 37 down from 55 last week so that's positive but of course these are all lagging numbers mm-hmm. right it is estimated that 30 to 60 percent of hospitalizations are caused co- are cases caused by covid um that's about us precise as we can get, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still a sizable amount. Uh, but interesting in the whole with COVID versus because of COVID debate, doctors are noticing the emerging new, emerging nuance of death resulting from a non-COVID condition that was worsened, exacerbated, or precipitated by COVID. Which so, stands to reason. Yeah. So an assist, mm-hmm. you know, say COVID's not scoring the goal, but... <clears throat> But the most concerning data points to me is that Canada's test positivity rate stopped dropping. Last week, as we were we, ah, last week as we reported, it had dropped one tenth of a percent to eleven point three, and we wondered again, plateau. Well, perhaps springboard is more like it, as the national test positivity rate as of March tenth jumped one point three percent to twelve point six, and for those paying attention, that's an over ten percent increase in the rate. And on March 13th, it was another 0.8% higher to 13.4% based on a testing rate of 101 tests per 100,000 population. And of course, our now weekly reminder that all these numbers are skewed by the fact that one man in little hell on the prairie, murderous Mo, with an assist from Premier Houston and Nova Scotia are pushing for us to score own goals by pretending to suddenly be magically powerless to make public health report daily numbers as public health has been doing every day for nearly two years now. But here's the deal. With two of our 10 provinces fudging the data, the data overall appears to be getting, does not appear to be getting substantially better and possibly maybe getting slightly worse. I mean, let's put it this way. If we had their current numbers to add to these totals, they wouldn't make the picture look better, right? Mm. So as mask mandates, vaccine passports, and citizen protections get smaller in the rearview mirror, let's have a quick sort of coast to coast to coast COVID roundup. Now, kids, the reason why I say sort of is because uh, I was trying to get a state of where all the provinces are on masking and passports. And apparently there is no one-stop shopping place anywhere on the web to find that out. 
at least that I can find. Uh, so uh, I asked for some audience participation uh, earlier today for the kids to suggest uh, what they know from their mm-hmm. areas. And uh, so we don't have a complete list because I should have thought of doing that a few days before writing the script. Uh, but yeah, with uh, it's amazing that but with all the news with Russia, how much COVID has been knocked off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very prevalent too, but it's just not, yeah. not not getting the headlines right now. Yeah, I have to go looking for it a little more now, mm-hmm. as opposed to it coming to me. Uh, so, with that, let's go with what we've got. British Columbia. Out of the blue, on March 10th, BC Public Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry announced mask mandates were being lifted the very next day. Masks are still required for healthcare settings, physicians' offices, and patient contact areas. Masks are recommended for public transit. Following March break, they will also be lifted in schools. Vaccine passports are still required to get into restaurants and bars until about April 8th. Visits to long-term care homes will be restored as of March 18th, and close contacts of COVID-positive persons will no longer have to quarantine at home, and people can still go outside if they wear a mask for 10 days. Saskaberta. Alberta and Saskatchewan lifted the mask mandate on March 1st. Not COVID-related, but this is where I'm going to stick it. <laughs> Definitely to be filed under... Freud. Mr. Ubaku Ogbogu did find time to consult a lawyer. And a letter was sent. <laughs> Finally, Jason Kenny's mouth gets him into trouble. On this one, I hope his ego gets in the way and he fights it. Oh, uh, Percival. Uh, yes, Aviva. I have a feeling that uh, this is going to be quite good indeed. Um, popcorn. Oh, indeed, sir. Uh, salted butter. Mm-hmm. Margaritas. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Perhaps a Caesar as well, maybe. Hmm? Oh, yes. Um, uh, binoculars. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Ontario. Ontario. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. Ontario, I I can't even do it. I'm trying to sing the old song. Ontario. And I screwed it up royally, and this is how tired I am. Oh, boy. Um, Effective March 1st, 2022, all indoor capacity limits were lifted. Proof of vaccination has been lifted, but businesses and organizations may still require them if they like. Mask requirements are in place. Of course, businesses and organizations accept schools. Throw the children to the wolves. Except that, you know, in private schools, they have the mask mandate. Oh. oh, you didn't know this? Yeah. Lecce's come under fire for that because his alma mater, St. Michael's College, I believe, mm-hmm. yeah, they're still wearing masks. Mm-hmm. A private school that gets a lot of public money. Mm. Mm-hmm. Color me pissed off. Yes. Uh, now, this is a thing you may have been thinking about for Ontario. Effective today, March 14th, mandatory vaccination and testing are dropped in schools, oh, okay. long-term care homes, and hospitals. So... There you go. Uh, Ontario will lift mask mandates on March 21st. They will no longer be required in stores, restaurants, or schools. They will still be required on public transit in long-term care homes and in healthcare settings until at least the end of April. Dr. Peter Uni, director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Table, worries that it is too early to be sure we can safely lift mask mandates. I would like to follow the data. 
I can't right now. It's, it's too early to already see the impact of the last reopening step, which happened the 1st of March. So I would have preferred, but that's how I'm conditioned as a scientist, to accumulate about 10 days more of data and, and then see, so do we remain stable after the last reopening step? If yes, let's do the next one. If no, let's wait for a moment. I personally would have preferred to wait about 10 days to two weeks to come up with a decision on mask mandates, of course. And this would also have allowed us to see what the experience of Quebec will be with their lifting of mask mandates in schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, sick kids apparently also was not uh, for this. Mm-hmm. So, not based on science. La belle province du Québec. Since March 12th, 2022, the vaccination passport is no longer required in Quebec. Mask mandates are still in place in most indoor settings. There's lots of speculation of when that will be lifted. Uh, People in Quebec had been told that it would be mid-April, but it seems that uh, Premier Legault is anxious to do that uh, even uh, more quickly. the vaccine passport is now uh, is no longer required in Quebec. Dancing and karaoke are now okay. Restaurants are open at full capacity and conventions are back on. In Quebec, vaccinated or formerly COVID positive persons who are close contacts of someone who have tested positive for COVID-19 no longer have to isolate. They must monitor for symptoms and wear a mask everywhere for 10 days, which probably precludes eating out in public. Uh, But that would allow people to go to work or go to school rather than isolate five days at home. The guidance with which we have become familiar to isolate five days at home and wear a mask for five days everywhere else after uh, still applies for those who are not uh, yet vaccinated. Um, And they say, and have not yet contracted COVID, but given the other condition, it should probably be. And, not or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Quebec announced that there will be proms for high school graduates this year, hoping that removing the mask mandates for kids immediately after March break doesn't force Frankie Legs to have to reverse himself on this. Uh, because, you know, he had to do it at Christmas when he mm-hmm. promised mass gathering, so it wouldn't be the first time. Uh, that would be pretty bad, close to an October 3rd election. But so he's rolling the dice. However, if cases do spike up, there may be enough time between both events for anything that happens to die down prior to prom. So mm-hmm. uh, in related news, the Quebec Kardashians, who uh, rented that Sunwing plane, a bunch of influencers, mm. and yes, and then couldn't get a ride home. Uh, Transport Canada announced that the first, uh, well, first launch of sanctions, I guess they call them sanctions there too, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, will be against six passengers of the flight. Uh, fines can reach up to maximum of $5,000, but ironically, uh, those sanctions will be imposed because those six traveled while not being vaccinated. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, so this was the low-hanging fruit charges that mm-hmm. are probably going to come. Atlantic Canada. Mm. Uh, in New Brunswick, uh, the lifting of all remaining mandatory COVID-19 measures uh, took place on Monday, March, uh, well, today, Monday, today. March 14. Yep. Residents will no longer be required to wear masks in public spaces or limit the size of gatherings. All businesses and organizations will be permitted to operate at full capacity without the requirement for physical distancing. 
facilities and businesses may choose to maintain their own policies and public health practices in New Brunswick. Uh, isolation will no longer be required again among the general public. However, people are encouraged to stay home if they are sick. Within vulnerable sectors, a five-day isolation period for anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 is still recommended by public health. And this includes people residing in long-term care facilities, shelters, and correctional facilities. For now, masking will continue for those working or visiting, visiting facilities where patients or residents are more vulnerable. In Newfoundland and Labrador, as of today as well, no more vax pass, no more masks mandate except for K-12 schools and hospitals. No travel restrictions, no isolation requirements, and no capacity restrictions for public or private gatherings. So interesting in Newfoundland how the mask mandates are remaining in schools. Mm. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, with these numbers and taking off masks and all that kind of stuff, right? We wonder if we'll have another wave and well, waves happen for two reasons, according uh, to uh, Mr. Diodandan. One, that there are sufficient number of susceptible people to be infected, which there are, especially mm -hmm. compared to our hospital space and particularly acute uh, care beds. And there are insufficient measures to prevent those people from being exposed to it. Well, we are removing the easiest and least disruptive measures, masks and vaccine passports. So if there weren't insufficient measures before, though, will be now. So, <laughs> and, you know, if we're looking at uh, data from around the world, uh, you know. Denmark, England. They're spiking, yep. Nationally, the federal government continues to move on travel requirements. Vaccinated tourists will be able to disembark from cruise ships for ports of call with a rapid test this summer. Uh, however, presenting proof of vaccination remains mandatory according to the federal government requirements for travel on rail and air transport when traveling abroad. And probably still within the country, I'm guessing as well, right? Yeah. I, so I, I, I would assume. In country. I would assume. Yeah. Um, in other research, according to UBC data, more than 50% of Canadians say their mental health has worsened over the past two years. And for women of 55 plus, that's 60%. It's the highest group. Wow. Yeah. Calls to some crisis lines are up 20%. 17% of Canadians who felt they needed help didn't get it over the course of the last two years. And in Alberta, that percentage is the highest at 23. Well, of course, because Bumbles McGee is trying to privatize everything and throw everybody to the wolves while he cuts wages for healthcare workers. I hate him so much. Mm. And Mr. Grizzly, if you will. I forgot to put it in, the, in red. Sorry. Oh, that's your coast to coast to coast COVID roundup. So <laughs> if it's not in red, I don't know. Yeah, sorry, that, that was my bad. Uh, a new study pu published in the journal Nature says that people with even a mild case of COVID-19 may suffer from accelerated aging of the brain. The study found that people who had had COVID lost more gray matter in their brain tissue and had more abnormalities compared to people who have never contracted the disease. A lot of the changes were in the part of the brain that deals with the senses of smell. The study's lead author said that it's normal for people to lose a small amount of brain matter every year as they age, but people who had COVID were losing more than the normal amount. Uh, 
Experts say the results of the study, though noticeable, are nothing about which to be alarmed yet. Well. But this is why policies of letter rip are not smart. This is why you shouldn't give up on trying to prevent people from getting sick in the first place rather than just making sure hospitals are not overloaded. I, I, I got nothing. I'm just pissed off. I know. Pfizer is going ahead with clinical trials to see if its COVID antiviral drug Paxlovid is safe for children. It is already approved for children over 12 who weigh at least 88 pounds. And that's based on data from clinical trials that did not include anyone under the age of 18, but people who did weigh as little as 88 pounds. The latest results from those trials show that if Paxlovid is given within the first few days of the appearance of systems, it will cut the risk of hospitalization or death for high-risk adults by 89%. This new study will test the safety and the efficacy of the drug treatment for children between the ages of 6 and 17 who have COVID-19 and show symptoms but who are not at high risk of going to the hospital. Dr. Lisa Barrett is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, as well as the Department of Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine at Dalhousie University. And she offers some insights on approvals of vaccines and treatments for children. As you get further and further away from the adult age, the physiology is different, and you want to make sure that that's a vaccine that's working as well. They have different immune systems in under fives, and and that can often be a little piece of what's happening, as well as the intrinsic, beyond regulatory, but the intrinsic population need and want to make sure things are very, very safe for very small children. Combine that part, which is true of any vaccine, not just COVID, with the fact that for under fives, this particular virus does seem to be quite benign, meaning that very few of those children end up very sick. The bar is very, very high to make sure that this is an exquisitely safe and sensitive but safe vaccine before we approve it. Now, the risk to the individual child of getting very sick is small, and therefore, we want the safest possible vaccine for them. So if the question were, do you think there's an issue with safety in those under fives that's holding this up? I don't. I think it's more a product of us having a very high bar before approving things for under fives. Is it coming? I'm sure it's going to, but do I think we should rush it because otherwise we're never going to get out of the pandemic because the under fives aren't vaccinated? No, I don't think that's true. As long as we have a great uptake in the older people, including the older children. Vaccines have slowed even more. Over the last four days prior to recording last week, the greatest number of jobs given in one day was just over 43,000. In this four-day period, it was just under 33,000. Also, on the vaccination front, about 89.8% of Canadians five years of age and older have received a first dose, which means we're closing in on the 90% of total population with a first dose achieved before shots were opened to the 5 to 12-year-olds and the pool got bigger. And 85.4% have two doses. Only 46.8% of Canadians, regardless of age, have received a booster. Just about uh, 120,000 doses shy of 18 million boosters have been administered so far. And according to pollster Bruce Anderson's research, removal of vaccine passports may actually hinder our ability to raise the percentage of boosted Canadians. We must not make the mistake of assuming the fact that greater than 85% of eligible Canadian population is double vaccinated means that there's not a portion of them who felt coerced into it. So now that we're dropping passports, and along with the fact that after Omicron, most of us know that 
most of us know more than one person who's contracted COVID and not suffered terribly. There's a bit of... I'm not getting the third one now because I don't like the conditions under which I got the first two. Going on. Once again, uh, Rayat Dionandan cautions. There's an element of surrender here, of accepting a new reality around transmission. And I don't think that's an appropriate way to go. But mostly, I think some people are looking around the world and seeing what other places are doing, and they haven't suffered for it deeply yet. And I think if we're going to take that rationale, we should probably wait a little longer to see what happens to those places before we follow suit. And finally, since we've moved to the international, things in Denmark appear to be quieting down. Their BA2 spike was about three weeks in length. In the UK, they are spiking up. On February 24th, the seven-day average case number was 31,885. Just 18 days later, it is 91,772. In the last week, I think cases went up 43%. And as hospitalizations are a lagging number, we are closing in on three weeks. Yep, right on cue. The seven-day average number of people hospitalized in the UK on any given day is 700 citizens greater on March 14th than it was on March 4th. And uh, I heard today on the podcast as well that about the about the UK that uh, uh, they're noticing that with BA normally the hospitalizations are lagging number, but with BA two they seem to be happening in in real time. Oh, really? Yeah, well, that, that, that's not that's good. Hospitalizations are going up in the UK right now, along with the numbers. Um, 57% of the world is fully vaccinated and 64% has received one dose. On the African continent, 18.3% are partially vaccinated. 13% have two doses, doses and 1.1% have received boosters. There are outbreaks in Eastern Europe and Hong Kong. And uh, they are pushing the death tally up, according to John Hopkins University. Hong Kong says that it plans to test the entire population at least three times this month. And the population size is 7 million. So that's a lot of tests. That's the GTA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, COVID is growing in China. And because China has had that strict COVID zero policy, there's still a lot of... uh, firewood for the fire to burn through, so to speak. Uh, So uh, 3,400 cases of COVID in one day had been detected uh, last week. I think that went to 5,000 today, which was the highest number they've had in one day. Uh, And well over 10,000 since March 1st have been detected across 58 different cities in China, including Galunggong, which is an industrial center in the Northeast, and Shenzhen, a financial hub in the South. And Shenzhen is really important uh, because that's where pretty much everything Everything. chip in it. (laughs) <laughs> made so uh 17 million people are in lockdown for a week due to the covid zero policy and uh, the fact that chinese made vaccines have proven less effective against omicron than other ones something um, to consider though with uh, shenzhen uh, shenzhen is uh, a lot of the factories where all the electronics are made a great number of the, uh, a great number of them are fully automated these days. It has like literally a skeleton crew who just go into repair bots. So I don't know how much of a deep impact that will have on consumer goods. I do know that it will have an impact uh, eventually um, down the road. We will see it because chip suppliers won't be able to get the chips that they need to produce the products that we demand. So. 
we're going to see some major economic um, spillover. Yep, prices will go up. Mm -hmm. Already, already, companies such as Volkswagen, Toyota, and Apple have supply chain issues uh, in China. So, yeah, they express that that's another stress on inflation, and new numbers came out today. <laughs> so, yeah, it's we got now we've now we have a war and. How soon do we get to the point where we just say, what are we doing this for? I mean, the money thing, like it, it, it will, you know, it, this is just a, a ridiculous sort of theory of mine that eventually money will disappear. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. I mean, let's, let's be realistic here, but there's too many greedy people, but I think eventually it's going to have to disappear because how, how are people going to feed and clothe themselves when all the the basic menial type jobs, and I've done a lot of those jobs, don't exist anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. what happens then, right? Does money disappear? Like what, I don't know what's going to, you know, eventually, eventually there will be no place for money in this planet. Will it happen in our lifetime? I do not believe it will. But I think at some point in time it will happen because when all the jobs are replaced with bots and AI, you know, like they have... Uh, 3D printed houses out of concrete that are all robotic. Mm -hmm. You know, you have people setting them up right now, but Boston Dynamics are making robots that would set up the bots. So I don't want to get into a conspiracy theory because it's not, it's not conspiratorial. We've talked about this before, but anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Sorry. No, no, no worries. Uh, just everybody's asking questions about money these days, right? Indeed. Yeah. Um, cases of COVID have started to rise in Europe and hospitalizations have started to rise in Eastern Europe. And there are concerns about COVID and migration arising from the fact that Ukraine was only 34% vaccinated at the time of Putin's invasion. And some of the nations to which Ukrainians are fleeing have even lower rates, such as Moldova, a non-EU member nation and likely the poorest nation in Europe. And their vaccination rate was only at 20%. Yikes. Yeah. And coming back home before bringing it home, as of March 15th, Manitoba ends mask requirements in public places. Masks will continue to be required for all individuals entering a healthcare facility, including visitors. Masks will no longer be required for staff or students in schools and childcare facilities. Physical distancing requirements and cohorts are also no longer required in these settings. Individuals may continue to choose to wear a mask in various settings based on their preference, personal risk, or other reasons, the province said. Public health orders restricting travel to northern Manitoba will end. Individual case investigations involving COVID-19 will cease, and the province will no longer generate key codes for the federal COVID alert app. Public health will also no longer require those who test positive for COVID-19 to self-isolate and recommends that Manitobans with symptoms or who have tested positive for COVID-19 self-isolate for five days and avoid non-essential visits with higher-risk individuals or settings for 10 days. So with all that, you might be looking for some practical advice. Hmm? Dr. Lisa Barrett has got you covered. If you're somebody who has vulnerable people around you, or you have more than one household involved in getting together, then chances are you're going to want to keep an eye on the number of people where you're getting together. Right now, it's not about do or don't do. It's about do, understanding the risk, and how you might mitigate that. And easy, easy things like 
understanding if your friends and family have any medical issues or are vulnerable. People who are healthcare workers happen to be in a category where you want to keep them from getting COVID right now. They still need to be at work. So thinking about all of those things before you plan something and then making an in-between plan. For example, parts of your day may be inside, together. But reducing the amount of time inside together or changing the ventilation perspective and having some other bits that are outside that are still fun and able to socialize, that's kind of the in-between plan. Reducing risk, not getting rid of it. On masks, she states that in your own household, it's probably not necessary with other members of your family. But if you're sharing time with another household, it's probably something you'll still want to do if you're going to be there for an extended amount of time. And so it's that in-between land of no masks ever, or the mandated mask time when anybody's together inside. That's kind of where we are right now. And it really all does depend on people understanding what's risky, understanding what the risk is of the people around them, and then applying some measures that might make things better. For example, if you're inside and you're not going to mask, and you have some folks there who might be at risk, perhaps you do it for a shorter period of time, or with a little bit of distance, or with some increased ventilation, as opposed to just go for it. And really, that's going to be a shorter-term plan. And by that, I mean we're still in respiratory virus season. There are a lot of viruses around in the community right now, and combine that with COVID, and it means that people have the potential to get sick in large numbers until about the end of May. And so what I'm thinking of is thinking more about where we're headed with COVID, but also getting past the respiratory virus season so that we're not filling our hospitals and other places with people who are ill for whatever reason. And with that, Kits, hopefully you are well-armed to take on this next phase of the pandemic. Right now, I would still caution on removing masks. You've put in this amount of time already, waiting another three weeks after March break to see what the first results of all this loosening up are going to be before you join the early adopters is advice that will serve nobody poorly. Well, hello, friends. It's your good buddy, Mr. Grizzly. And uh, Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver's joining me. And, uh, well, today, we're hoping you can give us a hand, a hand up or a handout or a help up. I don't know. You pick the verbiage that best suits your ideal. Here's the thing. We incur a lot of costs while we're doing this. Uh, I've invested a few thousand dollars on new equipment. And to be honest with you, I have no problem with it. But it'd be nice if we could recoup a little bit of that because, you know, I'm not wealthy. <laughs> Far from it. So if you guys and gals and they and them like what we're doing and you want to help us out, it'd be awesome if you could go to our coffee page, toss us a couple of bucks. Mr. Beaver. Yeah. Um, we love doing this, clearly. We have a good time doing it. And uh, yeah. as the show is getting bigger and we're getting more feedback and participation uh, from you kids, uh, it makes our day and it gives us uh, motivation uh, to work harder and uh, come up with uh, great interview guests. We definitely have some lined up. Oh, yeah. Uh, normally we keep up a surprise, but should we just give some teasers? Give them the teasers, brother. 
Yeah. Uh, we've been talking to Cindy Blackstock. We're trying to set a date. Uh, we're trying to set a date with uh, Francis Hordelsky, who used to be the chief anchor at uh, the Business News Network, so we can have some uh, talk about economics. Uh, we uh, tried to get uh, uh, polling analysis and political analyst Evan Scrimshaw. Uh, so we're waiting to hear from him as well. Uh, we have uh, Murray Billet, uh, who is a, who's a big activist uh, in terms of the uh, gay rights and uh, bringing about uh, the recognition of uh, gays and lesbians in the charter uh, way back in the day. So uh, we have some uh, interesting guests uh, lined up for you. And uh, we're going to try to get uh, uh, David uh, Mosscroft back because uh, there's an election coming and, well, <laughs> we like <laughs> his views are always interesting <laughs> well that and and also the fact that um he's got some interesting takes on this current situation that he's living through as well because he doesn't live too far from me i don't like i know the general vicinity of where he resides and it and, and he's close to the action that i'm in the middle of so take it from mr grizzly blue jacket guy we really would like to hear from you. We really would. We really could use a couple of bucks from you. Whatever you can spare. I'm not asking for anything big. If you can help us out, that's wonderful. And we appreciate it. And we really appreciate the fact that you listen in and provide commentary. Thanks. And welcome back, kids. Global Affairs Canada advises against travel to Russia and warns Canadians in Russia to leave the country on the first available commercial flight. The government of Canada may soon not be able to guarantee consular services from within the country. Canadians and permanent residents in Ukraine who need assistance can contact the Emergency Watch and Response Centre 24-7 via Twitter at TravelGoC or TravelGOC Government of Canada by phone at 1-613-996-8885 and by email at sos at international.gc.ca. That's via Twitter at TravelGOC, by phone at 1-613-996-8885, and by email at sos at international.gc.ca. Initially, experts claimed that if Ukraine was able to hold out for 10 days, Putin will have essentially lost this war. Well, kids, the war in Ukraine has hit at least day 20. And we are starting to be able to point out some long-term geopolitical and geoeconomical implications to this war. We are about to enter a new phase of history in what is the world order, and nations are being asked to place their bets on alliances, climate change, food security, and more. Is China going all in with Russia? Is Syria now Russia's puppet? Will Iran and India ultimately choose Western alliances? Believe me, the world is divided between the life before 24th of February and after. And after 24th of February, we live in a completely different reality. This is not any discussion about any political flack. This is no way any discussion about political contradiction. No matter if most of the people in Ukraine support me as a leader of the opposition, now we don't have no opposition, no government. Ukraine is united, and we are united not around Zelensky, not around Poroshenko. We are united in Ukraine, and we are in one boat. And I think this is the fact that surprised Putin a lot. We are responsible statesperson, and we are united, and we have one enemy. And the name of the enemy is Mr. Putin. Said former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. 
The three places the world may feel the pressure of these shifts will be in energy, wheat, and as we discussed in the previous section, microchips. Canada turns out led the world in banning petrol imports from Russia. About a week later, the UK announced it would cut all its imports by the end of the year. Then came US President Biden's flip on the matter based on the fact he had bipartisan support to do it. And finally, the European Union announced it would reduce two-thirds of its Russian gas imports by the end of this year and be totally out of Russian gas, petrol, and coal by 2027. It's hard, bloody hard, but it's possible if we're willing to go further and faster than we've done before. Said the European Union's Commission's Vice President, Russia supplies 40% of Europe's national gas and 30% of its petrol. The cost of gas is now 38% higher in the USA than it was one year ago, over $4.17 a gallon, and it was four eleven in 2008, which was the highest it had reached at that point. Mm-hmm. You see, it has been over $2 a liter. The average price has at times jumped 10 cents or more within a day and over 50 cents within a week. Uh, so when you hear the conservatives yelling and screaming about the carbon tax or whatnot, I think like the increase in the carbon tax this year is like two cents. And since we've had the carbon tax in total, it's like been seven or eight or something. So mm-hmm. that's not what's causing your problem, people. <laughs> uh, the rise in the price of energy also increases the cost of shipping. And... The cost of fertilizer, which is also dependent on gas and ingredients produced in Russia, well, that has risen over $200. Yeah, there's a specific, um, uh, is it potash that they use? Uh, Russia is one of the largest suppliers in the world, is it not? I believe so, yeah. 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 Um, But uh, I'm not not sure if this is potash or just the the other fertilizers that often have uh, gas Mm -hmm. ingredients specifically because potash is on its own, right? Yes, yes. But it is Um, part of it, I believe. Anyway, anyway, sorry, off track. No worries, no worries. Um, So, which brings us to wheat. The price of wheat is at its highest level ever, and the price of corn and soybeans have gone up 26%. Just so happens Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat. And just so happens that Ukraine is the fifth. And just so happens that Ukraine Ukrainian farmers are probably not tilling their fields right now. I'm going to guess probably not. No. Yeah. Russia and Ukraine's combined, uh, combined produce almost a third of the world's wheat, and it is having an impact on Africa, Asia, and Europe. While sanctions have not yet hit food commodities, so Russia could technically sell its wheat, risk of damage being caused to a shipping vessel containing Russian wheat, however, is a factor. And while Canada typically produces a lot of wheat, a drought last year means we can't be relied on that much to top up reserves this year. The best we could do is offer up available room in our grain silos to store wheat from elsewhere. And so we hit an inflection point. The risk that this may become a protracted war is increasing and leaders are preparing us for what is to come. Putin's war is already working American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup in Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of gas at the pump in America has gone up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. Stated U.S. President Biden. And Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Rob Oliphant, added, This will demand a lot from Canadians. I think about my parents who told stories about World War II. That's the kind of sacrifice that Canadians may need to make at this point. I think we're ready to do that, but we're also with a government that has an economy that's buoyant. 
We have a banking system that works. We have the natural resources in Canada that make us wealthy. We have a system that is working, and so our economy will be resilient with a government that has a steady hand at the tiller, like Christian Freeland does. French President Emmanuel Macron had spoken to Putin at least nine times since this shit has started, and not much had come out of it. Last week, Russia was mocking the world, holding sham negotiations, opening humanitarian corridors that led only into Russia and Belarus, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, was not allowing uh, aid to get into uh, cities that needed it. And China was joining in the mocking, offering to mediate. That's where we left things. Well, after those talks failed, face-to-face meetings in Antalya, Turkey, were attempted. I definitely not expect much from this negotiation because Putin go as far as we allow him to go. And with that situation, I have to request from my own personal experience in communication with Putin during my presidency. Point number one, please don't trust Putin. Nothing he promised was implemented. No one ceasefire, no one release of the hostages, no one joint investigation. Nothing. Please don't trust Putin. Affirmed Poroshenko. And he was right. Those meetings amounted to nothing. Putin showed zero willingness to move off his call for total capitulation. Just lay back and let me invade you. But what a difference a week makes, kids. Out of the blue, some Ukrainian officials started to suggest that Russia could be moving on its positions in negotiations. This was the first acknowledgement by Ukraine that there may be some progress in talks. In fact, President Zelensky totally basically warned Russian soldiers that they now need to start surrendering if they wish to survive. Currently, Russia can't successfully invade the capital Kiev, and the resistors in Kiev don't have the firepower to push the Russians back. This could be a war of attrition setting itself up. And while I hate to quote him, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations John Bolton has a point about Putin's pride. Due to a combination, perhaps unexpected, but the combination of heroic resistance and effective resistance by Ukraine's military on on, on the one hand, and almost inexplicable strategic mistakes tactical mistakes, operational failures on the part of the Russian forces. The Russian military doesn't look very good today. And just leaving the Ukraine side out of this for the moment, I think Putin believes correctly from his point of view that he had better restore the reputation and credibility of Russia's military before this is over. He will have caused such problems for Russia that it's hard to see how they recover. I mean, this is not their special forces at their finest. It's now not clear when it will be over or whether there's a chance that Ukrainians might be able to hold out entirely. In that kind of circumstance, Putin is not going to take an action that looks like he's admitting defeat. He just will not do it. I have to concur. Mm-hmm. Then, later in the week, curveball. U.S. intelligence, which has been pretty good at blowing up Russia's game by publicly announcing its next move before it's made, claims Russia has asked China for both financial and military help since the war has started. Well, that prompted White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to jet to Italy for meetings with his Chinese counterparts, especially since China and Russia had recently declared that they had a special relationship to deliver the message that if China backstops Russia financially, there will be consequences for China too. There will absolutely be consequences for large-scale sanction, invasion efforts, or support to Russia to backfill them. We will not allow that to go forward. 
and allow there to be a lifeline to Russia from these economic sanctions from any country anywhere in the world. And China be like... Request? What request? No request has come in since Russia invaded. As their arm was coming out of the cookie jar. (laughs) One one me, one me. (laughs) China's going to be in an increasingly tough spot the longer this goes on. Meanwhile, in the background, a deal to revive Iran's nuclear agreement appears to be close. It appears sanctions on Russia for its invasion on Ukraine won't interfere with the agreement framework. Now to watch to see how China will try to scuttle it at the last moment with surprise demands. I had heard something about them demanding the USA return Alaska or something. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, the Pope, for his part, still hasn't managed to refer to the atrocities as more than an unacceptable armed aggression that must stop. Uh, Canadian Cardinal Margil Cherney offered the following apologia. I can speculate that he's careful not to do that because he doesn't want needlessly to reduce the opportunity for low profile or discreet diplomacy as well. Take a public position when you hope to be able to mediate or promote dialogue. It doesn't help by giving the impression you've already made up your mind and you know who's to blame. But that's a bullshit take. The Pope has taken public positions that the war itself should be stopped, and you'd have to be living under a rock to not know who's to blame for it. So why is he bothering with the pretense that there's still doubt? I don't get it. I have no idea. The Prime Minister's trip, however, was a success. He met with the Queen, the leaders of the UK, the Netherlands, Latvia, Spain, Germany, and Poland, but he also met with the Secretary General of NATO, Ukrainians who had to flee, and members of the Canadian military serving in Latvia. He also met with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. He also, during that trip, invited President Zelensky to become the first world leader to ever address Parliament virtually, and it was a rare joint session of both the House and Senate. This address risks being a generational moment, one of those Do you remember where you were when? moments. As Canada, other than Ukraine and Russia, is the nation on the globe with the largest Ukrainian diaspora, about 1.3 million of them, I believe, and a G7 nation at that, this speech was expected to have immense significance. And uh, President Zelensky delivered a speech to the United States the next day, but apparently... um, the invitation from Canada did come first. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Zelensky addressed us, but he also addressed the Ukrainian diaspora around the world, which had certainly tuned in as our nations have been bosom friends since like forever. And Canada was the first country to recognize Ukraine as a sovereign nation in 1991. But tell us again with all that going on that it was just a photo op. Because some members of the press and the Conservative Party tried to spin a narrative that this trip was essentially about photo ops. After all, why should the PM be there if President Biden wasn't? Or so went the spin. Unfortunately, CBC reporter Travis Danraj posed that question to Christian Freeland, who proceeded to flatten him. As this happened, Melanie Jolie was given major side-eye and stepped in for the tag, and she basically told him that his question was dumb. It never occurred to Dan Raj at the moment that he was asking the question that his employer, the CBC, thought that tax dollars were important enough to spend for him to be there to ask that limp question. I, 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 
I'm still flabbergasted that it, here this I've respected him as a journalist for quite some time. You know, it's real easy to destroy a career that can take decades to build. Now, he hasn't been at this for decades, but, you know, he's been at it for a while. It takes a long time to build a good, solid reputation as a trustworthy journalist, and you can throw it away in a split second with a stupid question. Yeah, yeah. Now, to his credit, Dan Raj did realize that he could have done better, and he did so in a t- said so in a tweet. And uh, yesterday, when interviewing uh, Melanie Jolie prior to President Zelensky's address, uh, he concluded the scrum by thanking her for answering tough questions now and last week as well. It was a little moment, but I thought it was a classy moment. Hmm. Yeah, some just- some redemption. But just to make it clear that this was not a photo op, even one of PM Voldemort's <coughs> directors of communication, Andrew McDougall, stated that nobody believes that there was any other place the PM should have been than on that trip. The CBC's J.P. Tasker agrees. Conservatives claim we are being swept along. I think we've actually been on the forefront of all of this. I think in large part because Christian Freeland... Uh, of course, has a personal vested interest in this. She obviously has spent a lot of time in the region. She's very familiar with the conflict and the long-standing tension between Ukraine and Russia. I think she's actually been someone who's been suggesting best what to do to target the oligarchs, for example. I mean, she wrote a book on plutocrats. She knows exactly what needs to be done to try and neuter this sort of force behind Putin and the inner circle that he maintains. I think it's important as a middle power that we do have trips like this, that we do branch out. Mm. And, of course, as Zelensky was getting ready to deliver his speech, I think Putin and the Russians then suddenly declared that pretty much everybody in the House of Commons (laughs) was sanctioned and not allowed to come to Russia. (laughs) It's sort of like a little badge of honor. Like this, and as I just imagine, like Christian Freeland, like being there, it's like, "Hey guys, <laughs> nice of you to join me. I've been here since 2014. Welcome to the club. I've been here since the next Crimea. Let me show you around." <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Several countries are being asked to free up some other strategic reserves of oil uh, in order to hinder the rise of the price of oil. Canada has no strategic reserves uh, because we sell more than we consume, despite being the fifth largest producer in the world. Canada has a very strong energy sector with thousands of good Canadian jobs working hard. Even as we look ambitiously towards transitioning towards net zero, we know that there's a continued need for oil and gas that has been heightened because of the conflict with Russia. Now, while some like Kenny are going back to the old oil well, trying to apply the paddles to Keystone XL, TransCanada came out on the record to say it is no longer interested in the project. So, seems we are hitting another inflection point. Eddie Perez, who teaches climate justice and international cooperation at the University of Montreal, says, As this war exposes our dependence to oil and gas, it is also a way for governments to understand that wind, solar are cheaper. They're cleaner, and they don't rely on turbulent and geopolitical power plays. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson agrees. Certainly Canada is offered to do anything it can. We're obviously living with certain restraints in the short term, but certainly in the medium to long term, we are very engaged with the Europeans in particular on how we might help them with the transition they need to make. 
The European ministers, to a person around the table at the IAE meeting, said that this is the catalyst for vastly accelerating the transition towards renewables and hydrogen. Now, this may lead also to a greater push towards small nuclear reactors, which are relatively quick to build. Right now, gas prices are high, oil prices are high, and we're not going to solve anything with building stuff within the next 12 months. The issue with Canada coming into backfill has more to do with the fact that Europe needs Canada's natural gas more than it needs its oil, and because liquefied natural gas must be frozen before it can be shipped. Wilkinson again. The need, obviously, in the short term, can only be addressed through existing infrastructure in this country. That means looking at the extent to which you can debottle pipelines that exist today. That means getting the Trans Mountain Pipeline on stream within the next year or so. It means getting the LNG facility in Kitimat on stream. But if you're talking within the next 6 to 12 months, you got to live within the existing infrastructure that you have. Beyond that, when you're looking at what can Canada do to help with the overall transition, which is almost certainly going to be a largely liquid natural gas to hydrogen, and that means you have to produce oil and gas in this country in a very low emissions way, which is why we have brought in, for example, regulations on methane emissions, why we brought in work that is being done on carbon capture and sequestration, and we're bringing a cap on oil and gas emissions and a declining one in this country. In fact, if you actually saw enhanced production from Canada, that's done in a lower emission way, that can fit within our overall targets for climate change. It actually would be better for the world economy or the global climate because Russia doesn't do that. They do not pay as much attention from an environmental perspective. And so you can actually see this as being beneficial and certainly not detrimental from a climate perspective. But you have to do it in the right way. It's not just about drilling holes. It's about eventually how do you manage the emissions in a thoughtful and constructive way. Meanwhile, While convoys and COVID and combat are dominating our focus, quietly in the background, the International Energy Agency says that international emissions of carbon hit their highest level in 2021. More than 36 billion tons of carbon were released into the atmosphere. That's a 6% increase over the previous year. The IEA says that increases in the price of natural gas have led to increased burning of coal. At the end of the day... We're not going to abandon the work that is being done, not just here, but in Europe and in the United States and around the world to fight climate change, which is also an existential threat. Concluded Wilkinson. The question then becomes, but does China just turn around and buy all of Russia's oil, thus destroying the global impact? It could, but the Americans appear to have made it clear that that would result in consequences. Canadians are also being prepared for the fact that military spending may become a bigger thing. Inflection point. Will Canada commit to an increase in defense spending, and how will that play with Conservatives' claims about the deficit and debt? Canada is being asked to increase its military spending by $10 billion annually by NATO. At last count, Canada had reached only 1.4% of the 2% NATO defense spending target. 3,400 troops have been put on standby for a NATO mission. Canada has provided NATO with two tactical airlift planes with personnel for two weeks, a surveillance aircraft, and the HMCS Halifax with a crew of about 250 will head to Europe at the end of March to join the HMCS Montreal. We are sending another $50 million in equipment, including surveillance drones. And Canada's Chief of Defence Staff, Wayne Eyre, says that the situation in Russia should prompt Canada to take more action to protect the North. 
It is not inconceivable that our sovereignty might be challenged. So as we are taking a look at what is happening in Ukraine, we're also having a very close look at what else Russia is doing in the world. And the far north is a key area of concern. Defense Minister Anita Anand will respond to the concerns of premiers of the Northern Territories by planning a visit to the Arctic for her Arctic defense counterparts in the region. In the last budget, $252 million towards modernizing NORAD and supporting continental defense capabilities had been earmarked. Canada is also investing in six new Arctic and offshore patrol vessels, enhanced surveillance and intelligence capabilities, and the contract to purchase 88 fighter jets should be issued this year. Finally. Mm. Lord. NORAD is also staging an Arctic air defense exercise called Operation Noble Defender. 250 Canadians and 100 U.S. military personnel are stationed at Air Force bases across northern Canada and Greenland, which is something new I learned this week. I had no idea that NORAD was based in Greenland. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Too late. Uh, During his stop in Latvia, the Prime Minister announced an early multi-year renewal until 2023 of Operation Reassurance. Uh, That's the mission we lead in Latvia, in which 10 different NATO member countries are participating to support NATO and Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, Russia declared external convoys of military aid to Ukraine as legitimate targets, but NATO already said previously that that would be an escalation if Russia did something about that. Article 5. Regardless, U.S. Congress started looking at a $13.6 billion package, of which $6.5 billion would go to the military, and more than $4 billion would provide humanitarian support for refugees and people displaced within Ukraine. In addition, officials from the Pentagon confirmed that the United States have redeployed two anti-missile batteries from Germany onto Polish territory at the request of the Polish government. Last but not least, NATO keeps refusing to accede to Ukraine's request for a no-fly zone. It looked like for a time that Poland was going to allow Ukrainians to use their fleet of MiG-29 Soviet-era planes because they're already trained to fly them. Mm. However, the USA had an issue with that, and I don't know where the issue stands at the moment. Uh, I know that today President Biden did, uh, however, announce that there's going to be more uh, weaponry in terms of air-to-surface, surface-to-air missiles and stuff like that Mm. to help. Uh, with the air fight, but uh, still no planes. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez stated, While war reigns over Ukraine, a sort of Damocles hangs over the global economy. Especially in the developing world, even before the conflict, developing countries were struggling to recover from the pandemic with record inflation, rising interest rates, and looming debt burdens. Their ability to respond has been erased by exponential increases in the cost of financing. The government of Canada announced it would match donations to the Red Cross up to $30 million rather than 10. Remember, we said we'd have no problem hitting that. Mm-hmm. Well, we also had no problem hitting 30. Uh, it further announced that half the initial $100 million earmarked for the international aid has been allocated already to NGOs such as Save the Children. The Red Cross is strongly encouraging Canadians to make donations in dollars rather than in-kind items to ensure that we have the money to buy what is needed on site, they claim. The Red Cross has amassed at least $92 million, 30 of which has come from the federal government because that amount had been reached rather quickly. The UN food program is in trouble. 
Europeans project that Europe and Africa will be quite destabilized on food security in about 18 months. Countries such as Lebanon and Egypt are heavily reliant on grain from Ukraine. In fact, 30% of the world's wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine, as we stated earlier, but the World Food Program relies on Ukraine for 50% of its supply. As such, the World Food Program launched an appeal for $500 million. And there is competition for those dollars, kids, as 12 million people, or 90% of the population of Syria, are facing food shortages. And atrocities continue in Yemen, currently the most horrible human disaster on the planet. And the United Nations is calling the international community urgently to help donate to a fund that will help 4 million Somalians who are facing an intense drought. The coordinator of humanitarian efforts in Somalia says the situation is desperate and desperate and deteriorating rapidly. The region is suffering its third consecutive season of drought. Estimates are that about $2 billion uh, are needed, but uh, only 3% of that amount has come in. So, like we said, lots of competition for global aid dollars at the moment. While Canadian farmers produce about 12% of the world's wheat, and while price of wheat has reached 14-year highs, having increased at least 40% since the invasion of Ukraine, that's insane, it's still nearly impossible for Canadian farmers to just plant more because, well, crop rotation plans are set well in advance, and it's too late for farmers to plant additional wheat for this year's coming crop. But Canadians are helping in other ways. A group in Ottawa is helping Black international students get out of Ukraine. The students there report there being two lines at the Romanian border, one for Ukrainians and one for foreigners. And while watching crowds of white Ukrainians enter, people of color were waiting eight hours in their line. A plane left Edmonton filled to capacity with medical supplies, firefighting equipment, and tactical items for soldiers in Ukraine. The gear has been bought or donated by businesses, community members, fire departments, etc. It is valued in the millions of dollars, and everything will be donated to the State of Emergency Services of the Government of Ukraine. Canadians are also buying Etsy print-at-home artwork made by Ukrainians in under to be able to fund them directly. So, you know, a new twist on the Airbnb stuff that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the mayor of Kiev, half the population has left. The UN Refugee Agency says 73,000 children a day are becoming refugees. That's 55 children every minute, nearly one per second, or 1.5 million total since the war began. That's a staggering number. More than 3 million people have fled the country, with at least half going into Poland. And it is estimated that in addition to all of this, there are at least 2 million displaced persons within Ukraine. One one in six people currently living in the city of Warsaw in Poland have arrived in the last two weeks. That's similar for the city of Krakow. The leader of Moldova says that the population of his country has increased 4% in the past few weeks, with 300,000 refugees arriving. The UK government is looking to see whether or not it can use property seized from Russian oligarchs to house Ukrainian refugees, and it is offering UK citizens $600 a month to host refugees in their homes. And finally, the cities of Kharkiv and Mariupol have suffered the worst of the brunt so far. About 200,000 citizens of Mariupol were trapped in their city, deprived of food and water, so much that they were reduced to drinking rainwater 
and dead bodies were being put into mass graves. Electricity has been cut and other supplies for at least 10 days were not getting into the city. Uh, a corridor to escape to, to Zakarpatia was finally established, but uh, for days they kept on establishing corridors and then bombing or shelling them as people were trying to escape. Uh, Zakarpatia is still controlled by Ukraine. A convoy of over 150 vehicles and 4,000 civilians was able to get through on the first day that uh, the corridor was actually functional. It was the first successful opening of a humanitarian corridor out of that city since the start of the war. Back at home, in the space of just three days, over 700 Manitoba families have agreed to host Ukrainians coming to Canada. But clearly that won't be enough. Canada put a process in place starting January 19th to expedite the processing of cases already in the system, and on March 10th, 7,423 Ukrainians had already arrived in Canada since January 1st. Current applications are still being expedited on a priority basis, but Canada may have to use its heavy airlift capacity in order to bring some of those refugees back home to safety. Given the demand, Canada is readying itself to accept Ukrainians, uh, will accept more refugees, following demands to lift visa restrictions. My primary motivation, though, was to get people here as quickly as possible. And I actually first looked, when I learned of the potential influx of people seeking to come to Canada, I asked myself, could we stand up uh, and expedite the refugee resettlement process? And the answer was no, not in a timely way. Said Sean Fraser, Canada's Minister of Immigration. My next reaction was to consider whether we could actually issue a visa waiver. And what we learned very quickly is it would have taken certain regulatory changes and certain changes to our IT systems across three different government departments, as well as potential changes to the systems that airlines use. And the timeline that we understand could actually be workable for that is 12 to 14 weeks. And we don't have that much time. So we set up something based on tourists to Canada because it's quicker and can handle the volume. But on the security side, in the Donbass, for the past eight years, there's been pro-Russian forces actually fighting with Ukrainians and by insisting on still using biometrics but waiving all the other elements of a normal visa process, we're able to get people here as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Fraser contends it would have taken months longer to impose... uh, the waiver than to do the program this way, especially since existing immigration backlog was about 1.8 million applications at the end of 2021. $117 million was made available for the purposes of facilitating the processing of asylum requests. And on March 17th, a more streamlined system should be in place. St. Patrick's Day. Yes. A new pathway has been built on the system that would be used to normally process tourists for people who are coming in for an extended stay but not seeking to immigrate. Since the government, for the purposes of making this work, is assuming that the refugees are coming here on a temporary basis, it can therefore adapt to this existing higher capacity system by removing a lot of the processes that could generate refusals. At full capacity, this pathway could handle 2 million or more applications in a given year. The pathway was devised with the participation of the Canadian-Ukrainian community, a great example of the GIPA principle at play. GIPA, for those who don't know, is the greater involvement of people affected. Hmm. It's a principle that comes from the HIV-AIDS community back in the day when uh, they were looking to devise programs that would affect the community, and they were saying, well, you know, 
nothing about us, you know, nothing about us, nothing for us without us type thing, right? Right. As we wondered on the last episode, yes, the government is starting to put more definition around the word unlimited when it says, (laughs) because Ukraine is a country of 40 something million people. 44 million. Hmm? 44 million, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fraser appeared to frame it as there being a cap, no cap on the number of applications we are willing to accept. Look, there's no question we're trying something new and completely innovative when it comes to responding to a humanitarian crisis. In respect to the situation in Ukraine and the volumes of people we are seeing that are fleeing, we're trying something new in Ukraine, though. And, and to the extent that it is successful, it might be a model to follow for crises in the future. Asserted Fraser. So, it would be like applying to travel here, a simple application form with a completion of biometrics. And to make that latter part easier, mobile biometrics collection units were moved to 30 different locations in Europe and along the border so that that section of the application can be completed on site. Refugees will be eligible for open work permits as soon as they arrive so they can seamlessly transition into employment. Now, as we discussed last week, when comparing Ukraine and Afghanistan in light of recent comments, noting seemingly different treatment for different refugees, Fraser says both have in common that the federal government made specific commitments to people, but... One of the key differences between the approach in Afghanistan and the approach in Ukraine is the fact that when we resettle refugees, we plan to do it on a permanent basis. We're dealing with a situation in which we don't expect very many or potentially any of the people who come to Canada are going to want to return to their homeland. This requires us to not just get people here quickly, but also to invest in the capacity of the settlement sector in Canada, which is stretched after many years of dealing with an influx of Syrian refugees who are making contributions to our community is now expected to welcome more Afghan refugees on a permanent basis. So it has to do with system capacity, it has to do with the nature of the conflict, and it has to do with Canada's particular connection with the situation in Ukraine and Afghanistan. To your point on the suggested discrepancy in the fact that Ukrainians may be able to apply for permanent residency once they're here, Afghans have that capacity as well. Now, logistical challenges on the ground that make it extremely difficult for people who are in a territory controlled by the Taliban to access safe passage or an application process... But the opportunities for Ukrainians to resettle permanently beyond any family reunification program, and we're doing something similar for the extended families of uh, interpreters from Afghanistan who are here already, but for Afghans who want to participate in Canada's ordinary immigration programs, that's also an option, over and above whatever refugee settlement commitment we've made. And should it come to that, well, there's no place in the world better at resettling refugees than Canada. Not only are we a world leader in refugee resettlement on a per capita basis, but also on raw numbers. In 2020, one-third of settled refugees around the world found asylum in Canada. According to research that was done by Yale University, more than 300 foreign companies have either withdrawn or suspended operations, some with pay. Putin says he'll seize or nationalize the assets. Shopify, Canadian Tire, Canada Goose, Coke, Pepsi, Starbucks, Apple, Netflix, Universal Pictures. 
Lots of them. McDonald's, which opened in Russia to huge fanfare 32 years ago, closed about 850 locations, 84% of them which were operated by the company. Uh, There's not as many franchises in Russia as there are in other as there are here. Sending about 60,000 employees home with pay. Philip Morris did the same with its 1,300 employees in Ukraine and 3,000 in Russia. Michael Byers, a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, says... Up until now, a lot of Russians were very doubtful that there was actually a war in Ukraine. But when they see their favorite brand shut down, when the McDonald's on the corner is closed, all this builds up, and at one point, people, no matter how brainwashed they are, they'll start asking questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you have to understand that, you know, as we're watching this from the perspective of the Russians, I mean, they're basically being told that you know, they're liberating other Russian people who were mistreated by drug addicted Nazis or Nazis that are drug addicts or Nazis or Nazis that are drug addicted. This combination, right? They've been fed a steaming pile of um, horse manure. There's even stories of like people in Ukraine calling other family back in Russia and like telling them and the Russian and their families back in Russia going, no, you're being liberated. Right? <laughs> no, 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 we're not. We're not. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, the propaganda job is really good. Mm. Put it that way. Canada has sanctioned over 500 individuals and 32 companies or organizations associated with Russia's military and security services, including the Russia Foreign Intelligence Service so far including Robin, um, uh, Roman Abramovich, who owned a 30% stake in a company linked to supplying steel for Russian tanks that happens to be the largest private sector employer in Regina. <laughs> uh, but in Regina, it is making tubular steel primarily for pipelines. Trading of shares on London's exchange was halted for that company, and all 10 members of its executive board resigned. The 2,300 employees uh, in Canada were told not to worry about an impact on jobs because most of the product made in Canada is used in Canada and North America. Sanctions by the European Union and the U.S. means that Boeing and Airbus, the two major aircraft bakers in the world, are no longer able to supply spare parts or provide maintenance support for Russian airlines. And the U.S. aimed for the oligarchs' businesses by banning all imports of Russian alcohol, seafood, and diamonds. Uh, The U.S. imports $1.2 billion of Russian seafood and 900, uh, uh, 900, uh, sorry. Million? Yes. 900 million of that is crap. Russia retaliated for sanctions by retrieving its artwork on loan to other countries, such as Italy. Other nations are set to follow Canada's lead in removing Russia from most favored nation trade status. So apparently, again, I thought we had all done this, but no, we hadn't. Same thing with the oil. I thought we had all done it the first time, but no, it turns out we were for, we were in the forefront and other nations have joined. So mm-hmm. Christian feelings are freaking hard. Um, so uh, by doing that, uh, the EU and other nations uh, joining us in that, 50% of global trade will be covered buy it. So that really reduces Russia's ability to be able to uh, generate extra money. Russia had already lost a third of its output sales potential due to restrictions on production implied by OPEC in order to inflate the price of oil. So these sanctions on oil now come on top of this. Hmm. 
The swiftness with which the Western sanctions were introduced, the incredible coordination of all those measures, tells us that the Western governments were more or less prepared for the scenario. They they weren't caught unprepared for this. Russia is now the most sanctioned country on the planet, even more so than Iran. Over 5,500 different sanctions have been imposed on it. And its economy is fast becoming a basket case. Missing payments or repaying debt in currency other than the one in which the debt was issued, well, that's something that credit agencies <laughs> look down upon and can then could cause them to consider Russia to be in default on its foreign debt for the first time in over a century. Russia's finance minister announced that he will repay creditors from unfriendly countries in rubles until sanctions are lifted. So that would kick in those provisions. Mm. Uh, He says that Western sanctions have frozen half of the country's foreign reserves estimated at $315 billion at the time it invaded. Former Russian Deputy Energy Minister Minister Vladimir Milov says, We're actually back to the late Soviet times when we really did not have food in stores, basic supplies in stores. You'll probably remember all those pictures with empty shelves of Soviet grocery store. We're going back there. We're going to several dozen percentage points inflation. We already have shortages of basic foods and consumer goods in many Russian villages. But this is just the beginning. I think in two, three, four weeks' time... We will experience an economic shock that is comparable only to the period of 1989 to 1991, the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes, this will have an impact on Putin, because he doesn't have the tools to fight. He really believed in his rainy day fund and the financial reserves of the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank, which have been effectively blocked by the G7 sanctions against the Russian Central Bank. In essence, he can't use that now. Basically, the only way out for him is to print money, which leads to hyperinflation, as we all know from the experience of the early 90s. So he doesn't have many options on the table to contain this economic tsunami that is coming. And I know from a lot of my former colleagues who are still at the state service that there are no contingency plans. They're not prepared for this level of severity of Western financial economic response. There's little Putin's government can offer in return. Mm-hmm. And it's, he's right, it's starting to manifest itself. Um, there are shortages in wheat, shortages in buckwheat, uh, oil, sugar, um, and apparently even rationing has started. There are certain stores where they're not allowed to buy more than four five kilograms of flour at one time. That's all very bad. So how's it going? The southern city of Kurzan, a population of about 300,000, was the first to fall into Russian hands. Protests in Kurzan then followed because the citizens there thought that the plan was to hold fake referendums and declare them independent states, such as was done in the Donbass and Luhansk regions. Uh, Russia now holds that entire region. Russia has been getting more brutal, sometimes shooting indiscriminately. Uh, it has been hitting airfields to to try and make it such that if planes were given, they would not be able to be used. And Russia has been using dumb bombs. Uh, so people are wondering whether or not it's just trying using its all of its old technology uh, and saving the good stuff for the fight against NATO or whether that's all they have. But they don't seem to be particularly trying to avoid civilians if they're not targeting them specifically. The city of Mariupol had been without food, water for about 10 days. Uh, 200,000 people were trapped. 
Russia was blocking escape routes with shelling and a mosque where 80 people were sheltering had been bombed. Uh, Mariupol is in the southeast of the country. Uh, and as we mentioned, people were surviving by drinking rainwater and uh, one child at least had died of dehydration. And I believe that this was the first time in a long time in a war that the civilian had died of heat dehydration. It was a, a, a big thing. Uh, in the cities of Kharkiv and Mariupol, there were no quarters out. Uh, 1,600 civilians uh, were reported dead in Mariupol over the few days, and they were pretty much unceremoniously dumped in mass graves. The mayor of Kharkiv says that 48 schools in his town have been destroyed. There have been convoys of food and supplies trying to get into Mariupol, but they've all had to turn back. And Russia has been warning the West not to send more arms into Ukraine. Russia has also bombed a pediatric hospital during what should have been a ceasefire. Ukrainian estimates are that over 13,000 Russians have been killed. Um, the UK and the US estimated uh, a little lower, around 4,000 or 5,000. And the Ukrainians say that about 1,300 of their soldiers have been killed. The Ukrainian government is sending out pictures of captured Russian tanks, destroyed missile launchers with bodies of dead Russian soldiers beside them in order to try and deflate morale. And then the world held its breath as talk turned to biological and chemical weapons. Russia started accusing uh, the United States and uh, Ukraine of uh, having a whole bunch of uh, chemical weapon labs in the country. Uh, and this caused people to panic because Russia usually accuses people of what it is that they are planning to do. So that accusation caused everybody to think that a chemical attack from Russia was imminent. Steve Day, former JTEF2 commander, says... Yeah, I think it's likely. It's part of the Russian doctrine to use chemical or biological weapons, and it depends on whether they want to use persistence or non-persistent weapons. So... If you want to terrorize civilians, you'd use a biological weapon like anthrax, because when you put anthrax on the ground, it lasts forever. There's not really any countermeasures per se. When you talk about the non-persistent chemical weapon like sarin, they put that on the ground and it lasts for an hour or two. And while the Ukrainian forces are dealing with the casualties and trying to put in the force protection measures to deal with that, you wait two hours or so and the Russians could launch an attack. Because when you're all dressed up in your hazmat suits and in your nuclear, biological, chemical defense suits, you lose 75% of your combat effectiveness when you're all bundled up like that. So sarin, as a non-persistent chemical weapon, is absolutely in the Russian arsenal. Same thing with VX. VX could be used to deny airfields. It is a persistent chemical weapon. They could use it in spots and they just drop it and it will last for six days or more. And the point... You do that to deny the area. That's cold and effective. Mm -hmm. The mayor of Dnipro has been kidnapped. The mayor of Melitopol, Ivan Fedorov, has also been kidnapped. There was a video of a man being removed from the official buildings of the city with a bag over his head. A pro-Russian mayor has been installed in Melitopol. 
and Melitopol is a city that's of strategic interest to Russia because it would unite the separatist forces in the eastern Ukraine with Russian troops in the Crimean region. It's like this little strip that joins both regions together. And we know that Putin annexed Crimea in 2014. The mayor of Melitopol is being accused by Putin of terrorism and raising money for a far-right group. Oh, and COVID being declared a pandemic, Mr. Grizzly, is not only the is not the only birthday we're celebrating this week. Oh no, this week is also the eleventh year since the start of the war in Syria. Great. Also, Russia inserted itself, causing 5.7 million refugees and 350,000 deaths. Because it was so long ago, we sometimes forget that war started as a pro-democracy uprising that one man, who was a little sensitive, felt he had to crush. And since Putin is the type of guy who doesn't like his people getting any ideas by seeing what else is out there, he was more than happy to move on in. Well, now the bill becomes due, right? About 16,000 Syrian fighters are planning to join the fight. Uh, That joins an appeal to uh, Kazakhstan, which decided to take a pass, and Putin's letter to China and the fact that Belarusian forces have crossed the border into Ukraine. Approximately 60,000 forces and 350,000 reservists are part of the Belarusian army. And so they do not form a world-class, they don't form a world-class military capability, but they could provide support in an effort on the Belarusian border to free up Russian forces to be elsewhere. So uh, you ask how it's going. Well, seems to me that the guy that needs to ask help from China and ask help from Kazakhstan and force the Belarusians to come in and bring in people from Syria is probably the guy that's losing the war. Mm-hmm. Say. Uh, on the Ukraine side, about 20,000 foreign fighters or mercenaries have decided that they would join and about 1,000 Canadians have showed up. The convoy that was trying to get into Ukraine but had been held up uh, by some uh, shelling from the Ukraine side and blowing up a bridge, dispersed, and uh, is hiding in tree-lined areas and trying to find another way to circle Kyiv. And uh, there's a shortage of radiation pills and and potassium iodine tablets in some countries such as Slovakia because people are fearing nuclear fallout. And Putin's game of not touching you continues. He's gotten as close to NATO borders as ever. Uh, He uh, destroyed a military base that was used to stage uh, humanitarian aid and journalists near Uvarov. Russia bombed the military base in Ukraine, uh, and uh, that uh, base is situated just 25 kilometers from the Polish border. So he's pushing it. Uh, The first uh, foreign journalist in the war died. His name was Brent Renault. Uh, He was a videographer uh, and a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. Uh, Last week, we reminded you of a quote from Brian Brian Stetter of CNN, who talked about information always finding a way. Mr. Grizzly? Putin is putting up walls, making it harder to tell the story of Russia. But history tells us one thing. Information always finds a way, a way under, a way over, a way through, a way out. To that effect, Canada is earmarking $3 million to specifically address Russian disinformation about the war. Alexei Navalny, Putin's greatest opponent, is calling for more protests. 
the fact that his word is getting out, despite the fact that he's in jail, may reveal something. On Russia's Channel One, uh, a news editor named Maria Ovsyanakova uh, photobombed <laughs> mm. with a banner uh, saying, you know, asking for no war and denouncing uh, Putin's effort there. Um, that image was pretty much taken off the air pretty much as soon as it appeared, and she disappeared for 12 hours. Reports are that she was given a $300 fine, and she has left Russia. At the beginning of the segment, we said that if the Ukrainians lasted 10 days, they might have won the war. They've lasted 20. I leave us with a thought from three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and columnist Thomas Friedman, who mentioned that this won't end until Putin fully fully understands that he has few choices left and that his choices are do you surrender early and do you leave a little humiliated or do you surrender late and do you lose big and are deeply humiliated? That's where we stand, kids. And... We have to wonder whether or not there will be a caged animal or cornered animal aspect, I should say. Mm. So we hold our breath. Kids, we'll be back after this to close up the show. Hey there, Mr. Grizzly. Hey, Mr. Beaver, how you doing? I'm doing really well. Hey, uh, did you get something in the mail lately? Yes, um, Miss V Mysteries. I yeah, I did too. Awesome, bedside reading. Yes. Um, for those who don't know, The Miss B Mysteries is an LGBTQ plus cozy mystery series written by Delilah Knight. Miss B is 60, trans, and classy, sassy, and a bit smart assy. From her kitten heels to her chic bob, Miss V is a lady through and through. When her late aunt's lawyer is found murdered, bum bum and clutching V's favorite Chanel jacket, <gasps> she is immediately arrested. Ba-ba. Can she find the real killer before the local law puts her away for good? Will she be forced to trade 50s rock and roll for jailhouse blues? Do prisons even have a happy hour? Well, none of the ones I've been in. Wait, what? What? There's a story there. No. We'll talk about that after the ad. Miss V and the Letras Lawyer is the first book in a humorous, cozy mystery series from by ace author Delilah Knight. On sale now wherever ebooks are sold. Paperback copies are also available, or call your local library and ask them to get it in. Signed copies available at www.corvidmoonpublishing.com. That's www.corvidmoonpublishing, all in one word, dot com. The Miss V Mysteries. You need to be reading it. And kids, we're back. And kids, that's the end of this episode of the Eager Beaver Podcast. And we're gonna <laughs> we're very, 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 very tired. It's late. Uh, so we're just gonna reel it down in. We hoped you loved listening to us because we loved making this for you. If you really like this podcast, you can find us on Google, Apple, Stitcher, Deezer, Player FM. Do not listen to us on Spotify, please. And if you like it, tell your friends. 
And if you'd like to visit us on the web, uh, we have a new presence. Uh, Mr. Grizzly, it's podpage.net. Uh, let me verify. Is it podpage.net or podpage.com? It's podpage, one word, dot com backslash the hyphen true hyphen north hyphen eager hyphen hyphen beaver backslash. All right. So there you have it. Uh, all our podcasts are there in one handy little spot. Of course, retweets, shares, gentle corrections, constructive criticisms, compliments, requests, and positive reviews are always welcome. We love the stars. Give us some stars. And finally, if you really, really, really like this podcast and wish to encourage us to do more, we work for tips. Please feel free to buy a cup of coffee for Mr. Grizzly here or a mug of hot chocolate for me via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash eagerbeaver, all in one word, lowercase letters, that's ko-fi.com slash eagerbeaver. From the Beaver Lodge, this is your eager beaver saying, until next time, dear kids, it can be a tough world out there, so be kind to and gentle with yourself. And Mr. Grizzly, do you have some words of wisdom? Uh, Get plenty of rest and drink lots of water. (laughs) I'm very tired. Oh, just one more footnote about the pod page. Um, When you click on it and you come to the landing page, if you wish... You can sign up and subscribe, and you'll get updates from us right on the front page. Wow, wonderful. That's wonderful. All right, so let's roll the credits. The True North Eager Beaver podcast is an Eager Beaver Mr. Grizzly collaboration. Research, story, and guest curation, and copy written by the Eager Beaver. Recording, production, editing, and additional research by Mr. Grizzly. Music courtesy of Ben Sound Royalty Free Music. Once again, thank you to our founding sponsors, The Peppermaster, The Miss V Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, and CanadianTarot.com. And thank you to Peter Jarvis for our wonderful artwork. All right, kids, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jaggin' Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.